seated. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 7. Actually, Mark chapter 8. We are moving along. Mark chapter 8. Just a couple of things I want to mention. First, a special thank you to everyone who served in Vacation Bible School this week and to the children that came out. It was such a blessing to sing of being keepers of the kingdom. Many of those VBS songs were in my head all week, and I'm walking around the house singing these very catchy songs. Thank you to every person that gave of their time and their labors for the advancement of God's kingdom. Thank you to everyone who supported this ministry this week through your prayers and upholding us during the week. May God be glorified in the advancement of His kingdom. A second thing I want to just point out to you is today is the last day for our golf outing. So to RSVP. Um, So if you're interested in taking part in this, uh, see Brian... Tell him that you're going to do it so he can write your name down and you can secure a spot. Um, You can talk to him after the service. But today is our final day for RSVPing to Brian concerning our Quinesset golf outing. And you don't have to be good. Nobody's good. That's the thing about golf. Well, there's one that's good, Brian. But besides that, (laughs) it's about the time together um, and the fellowship that we'll share. So those things out of the way... With our Bibles open, let us consider the Word of God, Mark chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called, to his, disciple, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This ends the reading of the Word of God. There's one thing that we all can say is the universal longing of the human experience. We all seek satisfaction. You talk to anybody, and there is a desire for fulfillment in their lives. What they're asking for, they're looking for, is satisfaction in some form or fashion. Well, if we were to define the word satisfaction, it means the fulfillment of wishes expectations, and needs. There's a world out there that is chasing satisfaction. But it's not just a world out there that is looking for satisfaction and fulfillment of needs and expectations and wishes. 
There is a church, sadly in America today, that is also seeking satisfaction and fulfillment, but is looking in all the wrong places. This desire to be satisfied is natural. We shouldn't look at it as though it's a negative experience in our lives or a negative thing that we must, we must try to get rid of or suppress. It is natural to us. We were created to be satisfied and fulfilled people. The problem is, because of sin in this world, we look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. It is Augustine who said in his confessions that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. For we must understand that God in Christ is both the source and the end of our satisfaction. I can tell you from my own life experience, and many of you can say the same thing, that there is satisfaction nowhere else. But once we taste and see that the Lord is good, once we have experienced the satisfaction that comes through knowing Jesus Christ, being reunited in our created purposes, everything else pales in comparison. This is the hope of the Christian gospel. This is our claim that we are satisfied in Christ. And this is the big theme, big main idea that I want us to take away from this morning's message, being satisfied in Christ. What we have here in verses 1 through 10 here of Mark chapter 8 appears to be a duplication. It appears that, well, we've got another feeding of 4,000 people. This, we have to make sense of this passage here. It's the second of two multitude feedings that are done by Jesus. And if you were notice here in Mark's gospel, they're only separated by one page in your Bible. And so you have to ask the question here, why does Mark have these two feedings of, 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 of epic proportions so close together? Real estate is not cheap in the gospels. There's only so much that he can put in here. And so Mark puts these two feedings together. So does Matthew. So Matthew has two. Mark has two. Luke has one. John has one. What's going on here? How do we make sense of this passage? Is it, as many um, uh, liberal scholars and critics say, well, this is just a part of the oral tradition. And after time, the stories kind of took on different numbers. And so for Mark to feel safe, he included both of them, hoping that one of them was true. Well, no, we understand we stand on the inerrancy of the Word of God, the inspiration of Scripture. They're both true. They're both actual accounts of what happened. But we still need to make sense of why Mark chooses to add this second one in here. What is going on here? We know that the gospel writers are extremely intentional with everything they put in their writings. Let me remind you of what John said in Chapter 20, verse 30 of his gospel, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If we were to record every interaction that you had with people for the, starting now for three years, how big would that book be? It would be enormous. We recognize that not every interaction that Jesus had is recorded, but the things that are recorded are for our salvation, that we might know the path to life, that we might know what the Lord requires of us. 
So we do recognize that this is not an exhaustive, the Gospels are not an exhaustive treatment of the life of Jesus. But nonetheless, we still have these two feeding things that go on in Mark. The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8. So let's make sense of this, why there's two. To do this, we need to, before we get into the micro of the text, we need to take a macro view and look at this from a high level. So follow along with me here. You notice in verse 1, Mark says, in those days. Right here is a continuation of Jesus' ministry in the largely non-Jewish territory. Well, how do we know this? Locations matter to Mark. If you would look at the previous two sections... In verse 24, it starts out with Jesus, where he's going. And that he arose and went away, in verse 24, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Then if you would look at verse 31, it gives us another location. Jesus is moving away from Tyre over to Sidon across the sea. And so Mark starts both of these accounts with the movement of Jesus in certain locations. But, you see, when you start in chapter 8, verse 1, there is no movement. There are no locations. You notice that the location change happens at the end of this account. So what's going on here? Mark is showing us a continuation of Jesus' ministry in these territories. Don't let chapters and headings distract you from what's going on here. Chapter 8, verse 1 is just a continuation of what's going on and continuing in chapter 7, the end of chapter 7. And so when we would compare the two miracle multitude feedings... There are important things that we must see here. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And how many baskets are left over? Twelve. So the numbers 5 and 12 are very significant. If you have spent many time in your Old Testament, or if you were raised up in Judaism, you would know that these are very, very significant numbers. Five are the five books of the Pentateuch. This is the foundation of Judaism. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All the other books of the Old Testament are built upon those five. They're always going back to the covenant. They're going back to the story. So five is a very significant number. So is 12. The 12 tribes of Israel. 12 in the Bible represents a a wholeness, a, a a completeness. When... Judas hangs himself after the resurrection, and they're all gathered in the upper room. What do they do at the beginning of Acts to round out the complete number of 12? They cast lots for Matthias. And so 12 in the Jewish culture and 5 are extremely important numbers. But now here in chapter 8, in this account, Jesus feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves, and there are seven baskets Left over. The repetition of the number seven is very important for us understanding what's going on here. And it should be picked up by the listener. Number seven is the rhythm of creation. One, two, three, four, five, six, rest. That is wired into us from the created order. In six days, The Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Here's a kind of a trivia. I'm not a seven-day creationist. I'm actually a six-day creationist. On the seventh day he rested. The Lord completed all of his work in six days. Six literal days. Six 24-hour days, just to be clear. Nonetheless, seven is the rhythm of creation. But it is also considered, once again, a perfect 
complete number in the scriptures. Seven is the number of God. So when you place these accounts together to make sense of why we have this duplication here, we place it together, we have both multitudes feeding. These are two accounts in two separate locations, two different peoples, two final numbers representing completeness, wholeness, and perfection. But there's one Jesus in both of these accounts. What's going on here? Well, the first feeding happens on the west side of the Sea of, Gal- the sea of Galilee in the Jewish region, and the second feeding happens on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in a largely Gentile region. And so what Mark is communicating here is the nature of Jesus' ministry, that he is bringing these distinct people groups together in the church, that Christ died for all kinds of people, that Christ gave himself for both Jew and Gentile, that he would create in himself one new man, thus tearing down the dividing wall of hostility so that those who are far off and those who are near will be brought in to Jesus Christ. That's the point of the duplicate accounts here, of sharing both these, because what Jesus does for one kind of people, Jesus does for all kinds of people without distinction. So what Mark is doing here in giving us this account to his, remember, largely Roman Gentile audience is he's telling them, and by virtue of telling them, telling us, that the promises of the gospel are for you. They are for us. The promises to Abraham of of old are for us. And they are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of the scriptures from Genesis all the way through culminate in the work of Jesus Christ. Building his church. So, when we think about the feeding of the 4,000, rejoice. Because these are the people we identify with. This represents us. And so as we think about these two accounts, hopefully I've tried to make sense of why there are two, the 5,000 and the 4,000. Let's take it from the macro level and dive into the text here and look and behold the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, in those days... When again a great crowd gathered, Mark wants to let us know again this is happening, they had nothing to eat. What do we see here? There's another multitude that are following Jesus. They're hungry to hear the Master's teaching. And so Jesus, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Here's just, once again, another expression of the heart of Jesus. Remember in the previous account, as he stuck his fingers in the man's ear and touched his tongue, he looks up to heaven and he sighs as he enters into the pain, as he empathizes with the hurt of humanity. Well, here now we see Jesus is mindful of the physical needs of this crowd of people. He has compassion upon them. He sees their need and he wants to do something about it, which he will do something about it. They had been with them, as we see here, for three days. Whatever food provisions that they had started out with by now are gone. Three days of traveling and hearing Jesus preach. This wasn't like one of those really long Sunday morning sermons. (laughs) That 
preacher's going and going and going, and it's 11.45, and you're looking at your watch, and you're looking at the notes, and you're saying, oh, man, he's only on the second heading, and there's like six more to go. I'm going to be here a while. Then your stomach starts growling, and you're thinking about Sunday pizza or whatever the tradition is, and then your stomach takes over and your brain shuts down. I know the feeling. I've sat in the pew and been there too. No, this was three days of this. People were willing to forego food and physical comfort because Jesus' teaching was so engaging. They were literally at the point of exhaustion, but they didn't want to leave from that moment that they were in. We don't know the scope of what they understood there, but they knew they were in the presence of greatness. Again, literally to the point of exhaustion. And Jesus knows this. Notice what he says in verse 3. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. They're weak. Some have come from far away, he tells his disciples. This is what I want us to see here in verses 1 through 3, that Jesus cares for the crowd. Jesus cares for the needs of the crowd. Now, Jesus would have known they came from long away because he's omniscient. We understand that. But it is also likely to understand, see this, that Jesus engaged with the crowd. That Jesus spoke to them, not just didactically in teaching, but he was among the crowd. He smiled with them. No doubt he held a child or two. Asked them where they were going and where they were from. Jesus got into their lives. I think sometimes we, 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 we read these accounts and we just can't help but just insert our own understanding, our own pictures in our mind. That There's Jesus standing up, maybe behind the pulpit or wherever he is, and everyone's just sitting down listening to him. And then after he's done, he's got his 12 bodyguards and he goes off to the other side. No, Jesus is the most approachable person that ever crossed the horizon of this earth. Children literally flocked to him while the disciples said, get them away. Jesus says, no, bring them to me. It's important to understand, and I see it oftentimes in children. They're real good discerners of people. That warm and magnetic person, children will just flock to them. And it's a beautiful thing. Jesus was that warm, lovely, kind person. He knew about the condition of the people. He gave himself for the people. So I want us to see here in these verses that Jesus cares for the crowd by being among the crowd. But it's one thing for us to say that we care. It's another thing to do something about it. And Jesus does something about it. I have compassion on them. But he's not going to go compassion without action. Compassion is to lead to action. And this happens in the case of Jesus here. Because what we will notice here in verses 4 through 7 is that he provides for the crowd. He doesn't just care only in word only. But he provides for the crowd. Look again with me at verse 4. Sometimes we get scared when it starts out, and his disciples answered him. That's usually not a good thing from this point forward. And his disciples answered him, and this is what they say to him. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? We've talked a lot about golf today. 
from the ABF, I, I, I can't help but see that Jesus just teed it up for them right here. This is like, this is like a perfect lie right there in the fairway. All you got to do is hit it straight. This is the perfect thing for them. They're perfectly set up. They Notice what they could have said here. Yes, Lord, this is a fantastic idea. Even the Gentiles need your provision. In fact, we even have more bread and less people than last time. Philip doesn't need to take his calculator out here. We know what you can do. This is wonderful. We might even have more of a surplus. We remember your care and your provision for those that couldn't provide for themselves just a chapter ago. That's not what they said, is it? How can one feed these people? What kind of question is that? How can one feed these people? Because the one who can feed these people is standing right before them. They're thinking, we're not near a store. We're in a desolate place. Walmart is like half a day's journey there and back. There's not even enough bread on the shelves. How can one feed all these people out here in this desolate place? What we see of the disciples here is in this moment, they forgot who they were speaking to. They forgot what he had done. And oftentimes, when we read of these accounts, we're either the disciples or probably the crowd. Does this not describe us? often in our Christian experience. You see, we face present problems, but present problems are meant to drive us back to past providence. What happens? Forgetting what the Lord has done in the present, or what, forgetting what the Lord has done in our lives in the past cause us to doubt in the present. Does it not? Let me tell you, Brothers and sisters, the past providence of God is to produce in us a present assurance leading to future hope. We look backwards on what God has done that gives us assurance in the moment. What has worry, doubt, and anxiety ever accomplished in your life? More worry, doubt, and anxiety, right? We get into the hamster wheel... And we keep running in worry, doubt, and anxiety. And we are the hamster that keeps running in circles and gets nowhere. Why? Because we're forgetting past providence. We're forgetting the provision of God in our lives. We're just like the disciples who say, how can one person do this? He's already done it. Oh, we fear about finances. We fear about the future. We fear about whatever is going to happen. When will I get married? Will I ever have children? When will my life begin? When will I get that job? Am I going to stay in, stay in school forever? Is my health going to continue to decline? We fear all of these things. Has God not provided for you? Has God not time and time again came through and cared for you? Remember past providence for present assurance. The disciples give us an example here of what to learn from. But notice here in verse 5 the tender forbearance of Jesus. Sometimes what speaks the loudest in some of these biblical texts are the things that aren't said. How Jesus did not even answer them 
according to their folly. No, Jesus, in his kindness and forbearance, doesn't rebuke them. I mean, if you've ever seen the clip of R.C. Sproul, where he's sitting down, at, there's a Q&A at a Ligonier conference, and it's the very famous one. He's asked this question about, the, uh, about God and, and, and man who was created from dirt, defying the creator, and he just screams out, what's wrong with you people? I feel like this would have been the perfect time that that could have been said. When you look at the disciples and you want to say, what's wrong with you? If you've never seen it, go YouTube it. Just type in R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people, and you're going to find it. And it's very funny. But that's, that's what we have here. But no, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, what we see here, is that he tenderly bears with the failings of the weak. He is a merciful Savior. He is patient even with the weak. And he asked them, verse 5, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. I could only imagine the smile that comes across Jesus' face. Perfect. That's the perfect amount. So verse 6, he sat them down. He takes the bread. He prays and he begins to break it. And he breaks it. And he breaks it. And then a basket fills up. And so he takes one of the disciples and he hands him the basket and he says, go serve those people. As he continues to break bread. And he fills up another basket. And he grabs another disciple and says, go serve those people. Again and again, this takes place. And we see the the provision of Jesus here for the crowd. And in verse 7, he even has fish. Carbs aren't enough. They need some protein too. So it's a complete meal. What Jesus gives and provides is always complete in its fullness. What's going on here? How do we make sense of what's happening before us? As I stated in the previous message about the one where Jesus fed the 5,000, let me just remind you once again, what Jesus is doing here is he's multiplying matter. If you're familiar with the laws of physics, you have a problem right now. Because the first law of thermodynamics states that neither matter nor energy can be created or destroyed. And while this is an absolute true law, we must recognize that God is the one who made the law. And that laws govern the existence, our existence, but in reality they are God's laws. So how do we explain here what is happening? There's only one true, biblical, faithful explanation of what's taking place here, and it's called a miracle. It's simply that. It is a miracle. C.S. Lewis defines miracles in his book as an occurrence that goes beyond natural law. It's not breaking the law. It's rising above the law. God's not a lawbreaker even of his own laws, but he rises above. It's a suspension of natural law. By definition, that is what supernatural means. It is above natural. It is above nature. And so this is a supernatural event that is taking place. So the naturalists, the Protestant liberals, the social gospel people have to explain this away in another form. What they say is everybody brought their lunch and shared. And by doing so, everybody was fed. Well, the problem is they've gone three days, there's no food. 
But if you start out from a framework that miracles don't happen and you're anti-supernatural, you come across texts like these and you have to explain them away in order to, to, to maintain your system or your presuppositions. Why don't we just let the Bible speak for itself? And in doing so, we conclude Jesus does miracles. Jesus supersedes the laws of nature and Jesus multiplies matter here. So there's a theological point that must be made of great significance. Before there was time, space, and matter, there was Jesus. In Genesis 1.1, God creates time, space, and matter. In the beginning was time, heavens was space, the earth is matter. And how does God do it in Genesis 1.1? And God said, God spoke into existence all things. Well, if you were to flip over to John 1.1, how does John open up his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word, this Lagos, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is one of the only, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the divine Word of God that spoke all things into existence takes on flesh in time and space, and his name is Jesus. So what we see happening here in this feeding of the 4,000 is just what Jesus has always done. He is the creator God. The term for this is called ex nihilio, which means out of nothing. We use terms about being creative or we've created things. The reality is, is none of us have ever created anything. All we have done is manipulate materials. We've taken stuff and we've formed it. But out of nothing comes something. That is reserved only for God. Only God can take nothing and turn it into something. And on a greater scale, what God does and only God does is takes what is dead and brings it to life. And that's us. So the materialist that says matter is eternal is wrong. Matter has an origin. God created it. God is eternal. And what we see here in this moment is though Jesus is pulling back the veil and he is showing us his creative power as God. He is multiplying matter. He is creating out of nothing. From seven loaves and a few fish, Thousands of people are filled. There are many other miracles that Jesus gave power to, gave others, his disciples, the power to perform. Signs and wonders that were to solidify and, and uphold the message of the gospel. No one ever does this one. This is reserved for God alone as creator. But we also notice here that this was not an instantaneous miracle. We read this quickly. It's 10 verses and we can read it in 35, 40 seconds this is prolonged. He's literally breaking every piece and going to feed these people. They are watching this unfold before their eyes. And I want us to notice here in these verses, Jesus provides for the crowd. And so what was the result? What's the result of this great miracle? Jesus satisfies the crowd, verses 8 through 10. We read, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. 
perfect amount to start with and a perfect amount to end with. What do we see here? Everyone got enough. Jesus does everything to the fullest. A perfect amount left over, seven baskets, representing another complete and perfect miracle done by the hands of the one who does all things well. And now Mark will even reveal to us the scale of this miracle. And he tells us there were about 4,000 people. If we were to look at the parallel passage, Matthew lets us know it was 4,000 people not counting the women and the children. So you start adding those together, and this crowd could be anywhere up to 10,000 people. And then after this miracle, Jesus sends the crowd away full, satisfied. They were full on food, but they also were full on the experience of Jesus' grace and goodness towards them. They have been physically and spiritually fed by God. And then it's time to move on to a new location, as, he said, as we're told in verse 10. But the point is, is that Jesus satisfies their needs. So as we think about this text here in these 10 verses, the question that we should ask of it is, what about us? What can we take away here from the teaching on Jesus? Of this miracle, I think in order to rightly apply these verses to our own lives, we need to go back to where we began this message. We need to go from the micro now and zoom out to the macro. Because this account here is but a snapshot in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And if we want to make application rightly, we must make it personal. This is about you. This is for you. So one point I want to make here, a few points of application to take away from this. Just as Jesus cares for the crowd, Jesus cares for you. As we were to zoom out and think on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, Jesus cares for you. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us, 1 John three, sixteen. Jesus cares for you so much that he would leave the joys of heaven. That he would take on human flesh for all eternity. That for a little while he was made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Clothed in human flesh to walk among his own creation, to suffer with them, to suffer for them. You must understand that Jesus' care for us, Jesus' care for you, is not because you're lovely or a nice person or because you're godly or because you're worthy or because you're a church member. We are all unworthy. No, it's actually precisely this reason, because we aren't lovely, we are ungodly, unworthy, that Jesus came to demonstrate the deep love and care that he has for his people. Friends, you might be here this morning struggling with the question, does anybody care? My life's a wreck. I can't ever seem to catch a break. It seems to be 
Trial after trial after trial after trial. Nobody reaches out to me. I feel alone. I feel isolated. Does God even care? Let me tell you, there is one who's come before us who demonstrated to the fullest his care for you. Jesus loves you more than any person, anything could ever love you. Jesus cares for you. Second, Jesus provides for you. His provision cannot be calculated. It's not measured in material numbers. As many health, wealth, and prosperity preachers try to make it sound that Jesus is just an add-on to your life to make your life better. No. Jesus' provision for you is far greater than what you could ever imagine. And just as he provided for the physical needs of the crowds by feeding them, he provides our spiritual need by giving himself for us, by laying down his life for sinners. Let me remind you in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, it reads, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' great provision is himself. What more could he give? We read, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is the plan of the Father from eternity past. As we would read in Isaiah that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I'd always read that and my heart would be, would be so thankful for, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when I became a father and I had a son, it took on a whole different meaning. I love my son, my firstborn son, and at that time, my only son. And I would give my life for someone to lay down my life for their good, but I would not give my son away for my friends, let alone my enemies. But in Romans 5, even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. There is no greater demonstration of the love of God than the freely offering up of His Son and His Son who willingly signed up for it. Another R.C. quote. Someone asked R.C. one time, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And R.C. looked at this person and said, that happened one time. And he signed up for it. Because no one is good, no one is righteous, no, not one, except for Jesus Christ. And he suffers the sinner's death, the sinner's punishment in providing himself out of his great love for his people in obedience to the Father. Jesus had to die a sinner's death in order for you to live through the Savior's life. Here's your third point of application. Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies in two ways. First, we must understand that Jesus satisfies divine justice. In Exodus 34, verse 7, we read concerning 
who God is, that he is one who is keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But at the end of that verse, there is this line that says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What's going on here? If we don't understand the holiness of God in light of the whole gospel story, we miss the point. Is that Jesus doesn't come to just offer himself so that things will be better for us. No, when you think about the story of the gospel, we're talking about the God-man dying on a cross, blood being spilled. This is gruesome. It's rated R. It's, 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 it's truly a gruesome picture. And you say, why, why does all this have to happen? If God is so loving and kind and merciful, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin, why doesn't he just forgive? Because God is holy, holy, holy. And what that means is that a holy God does not tolerate sin, cannot tolerate sin, and his justice must be appeased. So how does God forgive and pardon? Because someone has to bear the price. Every sin that you commit is a debt. And it is a debt that must be paid. And it will be paid in the eternal ruin of your soul in hell, or it will be paid for on the cross. Those are the only two methods of payment that are pleasing in the sight of God. This is why we read in Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14, that God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, there's forgiveness. How does that happen? Paul tells us, by canceling the record of debt stood against us. No, he didn't. This isn't student loan forgiveness or just get rid of it. It doesn't exist anymore. No, the debt still has to be paid by someone. We can't declare bankruptcy. We're already bankrupt. So what happens? How does this work? The debt is transferred onto the head of another. This is what Paul says, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. He didn't just set aside. He nailed it to the cross. Jesus satisfies the divine justice of God by dying the death we deserve and hanging on there as the criminal, as the sinner. But he knew no sin, yet he bore the penalty for it so that the debt is paid in full. And that we are forgiven, and that we are pardoned, and that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For his sake, or for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus satisfies divine justice. So that if you are in Christ, though you struggle, though you fail him often, Jesus will look down and say, that is a soul for whom I died. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. Failure that she is, clothed in my righteousness, so that when God looks upon you, sinner saved by grace, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus satisfies the holy wrath of the Father against sin by offering himself to bear the penalty for sinners standing in their place as a substitute and shedding his blood to atone for them. And the final way in which Jesus satisfies is that he satisfies his people. As a result of Jesus' care, provision, and satisfaction, we are to find our satisfaction in him, 
in Him alone. You see here, just as the crowd was satisfied with Jesus' provision for them, we are to be fully satisfied in Jesus' provision for us. We aren't Jesus and people. Jesus is enough. Think about it. What more could He give? So those of you that are here this morning, the question I pose to you, are you satisfied in Christ? Where is your identity this morning? Or maybe you're looking for, for fulfillment in other places. Maybe you're trying to find satisfaction in your work, in your relationships, in your wealth, in security, in your self-image. In the affirmation and approval of others, maybe you look for fulfillment in drugs, sex, alcohol. Let me remind you and tell you something. Oh, friends, from the bottom of my heart, everything and everyone in this life will fail you at some point. But there is one who does all things well. And Jesus Christ will never fail. He is closer than a brother. And he has accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus satisfies. Jesus is strength. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our contentment. Jesus is our provision. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I would plead with you, if you are convicted, run to the cross. Run to the cross and cast yourself before Jesus who delights in the salvation and the restoration of his people. We would say with Peter, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Are you satisfied in Christ? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. Lord, we recognize that there's so much in this world that distracts us, or that we fight this battle of remaining satisfied in your provision for us. Oh God, we pray that you would just impress the gospel upon our hearts and our minds, that we wouldn't find our identity anywhere else or in anyone else, but that we would rest in Christ and Christ alone because of his finished work done on our behalf. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at your right hand. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins that are in Jesus' name and his name alone. Oh God, I pray that you would convict our hearts. Show us where we need to repent for some of us unto life eternal and others that we would turn back that we would find our satisfaction in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.